0: Welcome. You're listening to W.O. Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. Welcome. We're here today with Satim Mighty O.D. and Natasha Balani O.D., both of whom are current ocular surface disease clinical research fellows at the Paramin Eye Institute in Seattle, Washington, where they work with Laura Perriman, M.D., These three doctors recently authored the lead editorial on ocular allergies in the April 2021 issue of Contact Lens Update magazine. And today we're going to talk about what led them to this fellowship pathway and how this is helping them focus uh, on what they're doing now and what they hope to do in the future. Uh, Welcome, both of you. you. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thanks for having us. So, Doctor Mighty, let's start with you. What, um, how did this fellowship opportunity come up, and what made you say that that's for me?
1: The very first job I got out of school was um, one of those really high volume corporate practices, and actually left that job <laughs> after like a month because it was just too high volume, too high stress for me. Um, but luckily, I ended up finding um, uh, optical-based sublease about I think a year after I graduated. Um, and worked at that job for about six years. I actually still work there part-time. And in a lot of ways, it was a a great job. I had a lot of flexibility. I didn't have to work that hard. I had awesome patients, you know, really easy to work with patients. Um, But it was an optical-based type job. So most patients were coming in for routine eye exams, you know, doing a lot of refractive care, but not really seeing a lot of clinically interesting cases. I wasn't really interacting with the optometric world in any other way, other than consuming, like being sort of a passive viewer of continuing education and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I had always wanted to do more than that. I had been interested in in research um, and speaking. I had been able to do some research in optometry school and um, really felt like I wanted to contribute to, the profession more than I had been, mm-hmm. but trying to figure out, you know, you're five years out. How do you do that? How do you get the, the experience and knowledge to do that? And was thinking about, okay, maybe this is the time I go back for residency. Um, but it's hard, you know, it's hard when you've been out and you're making a good optometry salary to then be like, okay, I'm going to go a year and only make $30,000 and maybe I have to move to a new city when, you know, maybe you've done things like bought a house and done all these things that Mm -hmm. make life changes like that more difficult. Um, And honestly, I feel like we just got so lucky. Dr. Perryman's job post just showed up kind of right around the time I was really thinking about this, which was beginning of 2020. So a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was looking for you know, an optometrist to be a fellow. She was planning to start her own practice at that time. She had always worked for um, other employers and was kind of starting to think about setting up her own. Thing, do you know seeing patients, doing clinical research, doing clinical trials. She has been so awesome with just creating opportunities for us for, like you said, that contact lens update article. You know, she's been so willing to share opportunities she's been given to write and do things with us to help grow, you know, our, our careers as writers and speakers. So it's been awesome.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Balani, is your experience similar? Have you been out of school long?
2: So I graduated from optometry school back in 2015. Um, So my story is a little bit different, actually. Um, I was born and raised on the East Coast. I went to school in Arizona for optometry. And while I was in optometry school, I actually worked as a scribe and a technician in a multi-specialty eye care clinic. So I think for me, just combining the hands-on with the didactic with everything, it just, you know, we're studying and book after book, lecture after lecture, it just really helped those pages come to life. Mm-hmm. So within that practice, I got a taste of a few different specialties, cornea, retina, glaucoma, mm-hmm. cataract, cataracts, pediatrics, and um, I think I found refractive surgery to be so captivating. Uh, not only because I got to experience it firsthand but I think I I got to witness just how absolutely life-changing it is for our patients um, so after graduation I worked in private practice for a short while I was in retail and then within an ophthalmology practice and about four years ago I found my home with a refractive surgery team here in Seattle and I um, I think for a lot of us, COVID last year was sort of an inflection point. I know it was for myself and Dr. Mighty mm-hmm. and, and Dr. Perriman. So all of the things that we've kind of been thinking about, give us it gave us some time to be a little bit more introspective. So for me, you know, we were taking a break from elective procedures, uh, whether that was forced or not. <laughs> um, but for a lot of us, we just kind of rode this wave of emotions. So there was, you know, fear and hope and, the feeling of being really connected with one another mm-hmm. and then kind of strangely disconnected in this weird way that we've never experienced before. Um, and at times there's a little bit of boredom. And I think sometimes, you know, we're all really high achieving females in our profession and we have this kind of stigma, like it's, we always have to be busy and sometimes it's good to be bored and um, mm-hmm. it's good to give yourself some time to kind of think things through for me, it was just what I needed to um, sort of embrace a little bit of creativity and take the time to foster um, some new growth in my career. So working in um, refractive surgery, I think you know we start to see in this practice model that a lot of times patients' uh, biggest barriers to treatment are cost and fear. And for those patients that are fearful, all, almost all of them are nervous about the dryness component that follows refractive surgery. So to me, you know, I had this little bit of time and it was my opportunity to kind of turn to learning. I was doing more CE last year when we had a little bit of time. I had taken a course called Writing in the Sciences, just kind of diving into the literature a little bit more and um, reviewing a few articles on how tear film dynamics affect visual quality and, um, with our technology getting better and better, our outcomes are ever more important. And so when the uh, fellowship opportunity came up, um, Thank you, by the way, Matt Matt Geller from Covalent Careers for um, working with Dr. Pearman to kind of create visibility on some of her posts. But for me, I think um, just having some time and connecting with the right people just inspired me to become a better diagnostician and a more capable clinician for those patients um, that we see. And for some of those patients, maybe one a year who really had some refractory dry eye and needed that extra level of care
0: that's really really interesting because it sounds like you came to the same place but from from different angles. Yeah. Dr. Mighty, you were maybe a little bit more of a a, a dabbler. You knew <laughs> that you wanted the the research but didn't really have it directed and and uh, Dr. Balani, you you kind of had in your m- mind identified this patient base that could benefit from yeah. a specific kind of of research. How are you involved in in the clinical research, Dr. Mighty?
1: Yeah, so we, um, I work as a sub-investigator for a number of clinical trials. We're doing, I think, six or seven different Mm -hmm. clinical trials, all related to ocular surface. So I am doing a lot of the um, clinical work, you know, just um, analyzing patients, doing the the eye exam sort of portion of the clinical trials. Um, And I mean... It's such an exciting area to be working in right now. There's so much new stuff in the pipeline for dry eye, especially, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, some of the clinical trials we're doing are on potential new artificial tears, new pharmaceutical um, drops, neurostimulation devices, you know, potentially demodex, a topical treatment. So there's a lot of cool stuff. And um, that's sort of where I have been doing most of my work is actually on the clinical trials. And then we're maybe thinking about doing a few like investigator initiated trials and experiments. So kind of figuring out there a little bit more where we would maybe like to focus some of our own research interests. So that goes into some of the cosmetics um, things Mm -hmm. we had talked about.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But yeah, right now, both of us, I believe, are just part time with our fellowship. So we still actually work or other jobs, yes. <laughs> um, the rest of the time. So I'm only actually in office with Dr. Perryman one or two days a week, typically seeing clinical trials
2: patients.
0: Is, is that your experience too, Dr. Balani? Similar.
2: Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. one of the most amazing things about Dr. Perriman is just how flexible and real she is. Like she really mm-hmm. gets it. And, um, she's really offered some flexibility to both of us as fellows. So, um, I, the type of practice setting I am in right now is a little bit higher volume. And so, for me to make this fellowship more complimentary, um, it does require a lot of flexibility. So, um, a lot of my work has been with her um, in writing. So, we've written case reports on PCOS, alcohol, lid apposition, like you mentioned, the um, allergic conjunctivitis article. <laughs> Um, I'm working with her on developing a new dry eye questionnaire and some of that work can be done remotely. So it's just, a, it's amazing what um, these past few months have kind of taught us um, in terms of the work that we can deliver and the care that we can provide in kind of creative ways. Each of us are completing our FAO with um, the American Academy of Optometry.
0: What you're what you're learning, what you're questioning, looking at, um, in in this uh, fellow program, how does that impact the patient care you deliver the rest of the time, Doctor Mighty?
1: Yeah, you know, I definitely I've learned so much, you know, just about ocular surface potential treatment options. You know, really delving into a specialty, I learned so much of that I just didn't really think about that much when I was doing just kind of general primary care, where you know I would sort of treat patients up to a certain amount, and then you know if the drops we were prescribing, like steroids or immunomodulators, like Zyadra, Interseis, um, like if those weren't working, then I just had to refer patients out and and kind of let another doctor take over. Um, versus mm-hmm. now, I feel like I have such a better understanding of, you know, what to really look at in terms of evaluating, you know, the lids really in detail, even though I don't have a mybographer and stuff in my other office, um, to just really be able to take a closer look and help direct patients a little bit more, even without the more advanced treatment options in my other mm-hmm. clinic. Um, And then just now to have the the ability to say, okay, I don't have the ability to help you here, but I can refer you to this other clinic that I work at. Um, And also being able to offer the clinical trials um, to patients. I also, you know, I'm friends with quite a lot of the other ODs in the Seattle area. So being able to share with my colleagues and friends, hey, these are these clinical trials we're doing. If you have patients that maybe need some dry eye care but potentially can't afford it, you know, or, or just interested in in trying these new options um, to open up that opportunity to more of our colleagues and their patients. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What about you, Dr. Balani? Do you think that there's an impact on the outcomes that you're seeing?
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Um, I think probably the the two biggest takeaways for me, uh, one, just don't underestimate the power of tear film dynamics on visual acuity. Mm. You know, I think a, a lot of times if our refraction isn't adding up, we, we kind of, we, we feel the need to kind of connect the dots. And so um, just kind of slowing down a little bit. That's one of the things that Dr. Pearman has kind of emphasized from the beginning, you know, focus on the meibomian gland orifices get really fluid at grading your SPK look at your meniscus height, use your vital dyes. And so using those tools, and to Dr. Mighty's point, it doesn't have to be the most expensive, the highest quality technology or the latest and greatest. There's really, really simple parts of your exam that if you're taking the time to look at, you can provide better quality patient care. As one. And then I think the second one um, would be, you know, seek first to understand and then to be understood. Um, and sometimes knowing the right questions is just as important as knowing the right answers. And so learning that from Dr. Perman, what questions are going to lead you to provide the best patient care, it has been a really wonderful takeaway for me.
0: And how does it impact what you say to patients? Has it, has it made an, an, um has it influenced your, your communications with patients? Dr.
2: Yes, absolutely. Do you know, um, there's a study published by Leslie O'Dell and Dr. Perriman and about 85% of eye doctors don't talk about cosmetics with no. their dry eye patients or with their patients in general. And so mm-hmm. I think, just having that pearl in mind, you know, I have used mascara almost every day since I was 15 years old. And so these products that we're putting on our eyes, what are they? What are they doing to the meibomian glands, the epithelial cells, the goblet
0: cells? Interesting. And and um, Dr. Mighty, do you feel like this is a conversation that feels natural or did you kind of have to... to train yourself to to talk about cosmetics and ocular surface health? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think it comes pretty naturally. Um, And it's something that a lot of patients don't necessarily realize is affecting, potentially affecting their ocular surface. But once we talk about it, they're like, oh, yeah, that that makes total sense. You know, these products are right on my eyelid margin. Um, And particularly if I see a patient where, you know, They have really obvious you know huge eyelash extensions all this blepharitis and stuff it the the conversation does come come pretty naturally and i think um coming from a place of of understanding of being like yes i i know i've used these products too i also had no idea this could be such a problem um and having now the tools to say okay this is why what you're doing is causing some of these, or, you know, potentially causing some of these symptoms you're having. And and this is now maybe here are some products or types of ingredients I'd like you to avoid mm-hmm. that you can maybe switch over to, to have improved outcomes. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you get really specific in your recommendations, Dr. Balani? It's tough.
2: It really mm-hmm. is to be really specific that, Products that say natural and ophthalmologist tested aren't always really healthy for your eyes. And so I I would say that, no, I'm not necessarily very specific, but I will maybe give the patient an idea of which products to avoid and kind of an education on what those components look like and why it's important to be mindful of what we're putting on our ocular surface
1: there are so many ingredients they need to avoid and they have weird scientific names that, you know, even I have a hard time remembering even though we're like, actively doing research on this. Mm-hmm. So there's no way, like if I gave a list of ingredients to patients to avoid, it would be a giant list and it wouldn't even include everything they need to avoid. Cause we still don't know. We're still kind of figuring that out. So, right. so I try to give, you know, more general recommendations. Some of them are are easier. Like I basically say, don't do anything to really alter your eyelashes. Mm-hmm. Don't do extensions. Don't do lash serums. Um, you know, use false false lashes maybe for when you're going to a wedding or something, and and not regularly. Um, and then, um, what one thing we're trying to figure out is maybe some good eye makeup removers for for people to use. That's actually been kind of tough. We we actually went to Nordstrom this weekend, me, Dr. Balani, and Dr. Perryman, just looking at products, looking through the ingredient lists and seeing like, what which of these could we even recommend to our patients? Um, and after two hours, we still couldn't find a makeup remover that we really would choose to recommend to our patients. So that's something we're, we're still working on. Um, so I think most ODs are kind of in this position where even if we wanted to give patients specific recommendations, it's really tough. Um, mm-hmm. And of course patients have different sensitivities. So even if you think one brand has worked really well for you and many of your patients that might not work for everyone. So mm-hmm. we have to be careful about saying, yes, this specific product is good versus this other one. And formulations also change over time. So a product that might've been good last year, May, may now have a new ingredient that that's more irritating. Um, and, and that's kind of why we're interested in this area is there's still so much work to be done to, to help our patients.
2: Right. I think in a sense, there's, uh, to some degree, an unmet need. You know, you can do all of this work with your patient, you know, expressing the glands, flow, IPL, and then you use this eye makeup remover that's Full of alcohol and <laughs> parabens and um, products that really harm the ibomian glands and mm-hmm. um, kind of do your <laughs> all of the hard work that we did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the window, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so you know, being mindful of those products and wow. and learning, you know, for me it was kind of fascinating to to see that. A ton of the products in cosmetics have a lot of crossover between um, contact lens solutions. So that that same BAK that we, you know, that was a heavy hitter in our contact lens studies, is in the mascara and the eyeliner that we're using. There is a purpose for these products, right? So they're they're designed to help increase shelf life. They want we want to prevent the harmful bacteria. But on the flip side, these Uh, products can, can harm those tissues. And also really interesting, uh, parabens are potent endocrine disruptors. So like who knew wearing your makeup product could be affecting your hormones? And um, (laughs) we did a a case report on a patient with PCOS and that ties in beautifully, right? So the the patients that's, that's struggling with dry eye related to their hormones, kind of connecting those two pieces, I think, could be really valuable for certain patients.
1: So what's, what's next for you both? I would really love to continue to do clinical trial work and more, you know, investigator-initiated experiments that sort of, as I've been doing more of this scientific clinical science work, is really engaging and exciting. I feel like mm-hmm. I haven't been this excited about the work I've been doing in so long. So I definitely would like to continue to do it even if in the long run, that means potentially starting, you know, my own more clinical research based practice or continuing with Dr. Perryman, it's still pretty open at this point.
2: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we have been um, humbled and really surprised at how many opportunities have presented themselves. And so I don't, I don't know that we're ready for a finite deadline quite yet, mm-hmm. just because we're yes people. We don't want to say no. <laughs> so right. The writing opportunities, um, the speaking opportunities, and then, you know, the research trials, those take time. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, this may not be something definite long term, but for the next year or so we're definitely committed to the fellowship.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And I I bet it takes a little while to get into the groove and you know, yeah. you've got good things going, right? It would be hard to have yes. somebody else step in. Uh, possibly uh-huh. to, to something like that. So or hard to let it go. Right? right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Bellani, Doctor Mighty, thank you both so much for sharing your stories with women in optometry. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at WO voices online at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WO Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at Women O-D-S. See you next time.